I'd like to begin tonight with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. This quote to me seems to reflect something of what we do in coming here, what we do in practice, where we're confronting the essential facts of life, where we are living deliberately, and where we're looking into the nature of our hearts and minds. The nature that we go to is no different than the laws of nature around us. But as a human being, we have the potential to not just be a part of nature, but to know nature and the laws that govern it. And through this, we can find the capacity to live at peace and ease with the way things are. It makes a very important shift from just living on the level of survival to living in alignment with truth. Last week I began speaking about seven, the seven factors of awakening and these are the great allies in our minds that really help us to recognize the way things are, help us to find this deep peace and ease. So the seven factors of enlightenment being mindfulness, the capacity to see things as they are without having a conceptual overlay. It's a really simple level of being, a level of bare attention. Now we're not caught in analysis, judgment, stories. It's the, this capacity to remember to be present. And then the passive aspect of mindfulness, the non-interfering aspect. Then we have the quality of investigation. And last week I was speaking about the, the, these uh, seven factors, the parts of them that are the arousing that bring a level of energy. And investigation is the first one of these. Investigation is not um, the way we usually think of investigation, but it's a non-analytical, intuitive knowing. It's where there's a di- the, the capacity of the mind to discern to be able to know truth, to know the qualities of experience, to see things in their nature. Then we have energy, 
which, you know, we all need energy in our lives simply to get out of bed. But as it relates in the seven factors of enlightenment, energy or effort is what is needed to help us move out of just living habitually, living in a reactive way. It's the effort or energy that's needed to awaken, to remember, to come back, to be present. And then the the next or the third of these arousing factors is that of rapture. It's where there's a joyful interest, a delight in the mind, you know, just turning the mind towards truth and a raptness of attention. And this rapture leads to a lightness and an agility in both body and mind. And this rapture can lead to what's called pervasive rapture, where there's just a deep contentment. And this leads into what I'll be speaking about tonight, which is um, moving into the stabilizing or calming factors. And the first of these is that of calmness or tranquility, a real serenity of mind that helps the mind to focus, a deep stillness or restfulness. I was thinking about calmness today and remembering you know, some of the lessons of life around calmness back to being a little child and you know, just getting really agitated. And my mother saying, would you calm down? You know, and we, uh, from that level, had to learn something of calmness. And yet we find it really naturally coming forth as we practice and you know, also, uh, I'm sure many of you in coming here telling people you're going on a meditation retreat, they probably, people imagine that what we do is we sit here all the time in this deep state of calmness, <laughs> which isn't always the case. And, but it tends to be an aspect of practice that there's a lot of liking of. You know, we can get so tired of the agitated mind. And, you know, calmness is really the coolness of mind that's free of that agitation. And for many of us, when we experience even brief moments of it in practice, you know, it's, it just brings a real lightness again. You know, that there's just this, ah, oh, relief from all of this agitation. And so there's quite a restful quality to it. Um, An example given of tranquility of someone coming out of the hot sun into the shade of a big tree. And it's the coolness that the person feels in entering into that shade. Where, you know, it's like the, 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 all, all of that heat is taken out. You know, it's like, um, when we think of tranquility, we can think of coolness. And that actually has been helpful to me in my practice when there has been a lot of agitation. You know, with agitation, there's a real heatedness. And so then, at times, just looking to see where the mind is cool, where there's a peace. And, you know, it can be that there is a real stillness in the mind even when there is a lot of movement. 
So, ah, you know, at, at the beginnings of retreats, I remember that often I would start to experience the calm in the body before the mind. And, you know, that it was sort of like that, and the noticing of that could lead the mind into calmness. So, you know, it was just sitting and not moving, you know, not responding to the usual little wiggles, squiggles that happen, you know, in our bodies throughout the course of a day, but just sitting and needing to be relaxed. Now, this is a big part. Calmness won't happen if there's tension in the mind. So, you know, to invite calmness is really inviting relaxation, receptivity. And with that, you know, when we're sitting and just being with the body, with a steadiness of mind, a relaxing with the body, it can lose that jumpiness, that edginess, and becomes more still. And and then, you know, just looking, being aware of that stillness, it can gain strength, it gains stability. Calmness is really one of the benefits of practice. It's not the end, you know, calmness is just a state. It's not the mind that is free, but it can be a useful state in our lives to know how to calm the mind. You know, probably since we've begun practice, we've realized at times when there's a lot of agitation, if there's just the resting with the experience of breath, that just that steadiness can bring in calmness. That, you know, it's a great benefit in our lives if, you know, we're, someone's really angry with us, if there's this capacity to remain calm. So it's a real benefit that comes from practice, but it's not the goal. You know, it's just one of these factors of awakening. We find that calmness is present when our effort is balanced when there's neither a lot of zealousness and which can bring about an agitation and enthusiasm. You know, we probably have all experienced the times in practice where we get really excited about it. You know, there's the real thrills to it. And, you know, that can, you know, at times it's just the sense of really going for it. But it's not sustainable. It's got an agitation to it. Uh, and then there's the times in practice when our effort is sloppy, slothful. And so this calmness is when we find, we find it when the effort is really in balance, where it's neither too strong nor too weak, but just the effort that's needed to meet this moment. And you know, the, I, I remember so many times in practice just the simplicity of turning up for this moment as it is, and where there was a sense of faith, trust, confidence in the practice, it led to this calmness of mind, because there was no struggle with, and it was was just the steadiness of moment by moment connecting with experience.
And this calmness is really um, an important factor in the strengthening of the next, which is that of concentration. Concentration is the mind that is stable, unified. Many times in our life, concentration is not strong, and there's a sense of fragmentation where, you know, just at the mercy of the thoughts moving through the mind, you know, like the monkey in the forest jumping from branch to branch, and, you know, just not able to connect and sustain attention with any experience. But when concentration is strong, there's a unification of all of this energy in the mind and a connecting with experience. And this leads to a great stability in the mind. Concentration is actually a what's called a universal factor, meaning that it arises in each moment's experience to some degree. We use concentration a lot in our lives. Without concentration, we wouldn't be able to carry on a conversation We wouldn't be able to read a book, to be able to watch a TV program. Um, In, you know, venturing into the medical world, I've really noticed how surgeons can have a very strong, concentrated mind. And, you know, in speaking with them, it would be like their minds are so stable because their work demands of them this capacity to concentrate that it's just like whoop when you talk to them you just feel that stability it's quite powerful in the world of athletes we find that um, you know athletes talk about getting in the flow or the zone and this tends to be a state of concentration where the you know the mind is really unified collected gathered it doesn't mean there's wisdom but it means that the mind's not wavering such is the stability we find writers painters use this capacity to concentrate even you know within various religions there can be a strong emphasis on concentration, the development. Chanting is one form of developing concentration. Visualizations. Um, When concentration is strongly developed, it can result in psychic powers, you know, being able to read other people's minds, uh, of what's called the divine ear, the divine eye, being able to see or hear things that are happening at a distance. Um, the capacity to remember past lives. There's a teacher that many of you may have heard about. Her name was Deepama. She was a teacher to many of the uh, teachers at IMS and probably maybe even some of you. Just this little Bengali woman who you know, was said to be very realized. I never had the opportunity to meet her, but the stories I've heard about her have been very touching. And she was an amazing practitioner. And during the course of her practice, at one point, 
her teacher, Manundrudi, um, was teaching her around developing strong concentration and developing psychic powers. And it's said that she could do things such as walk through a door. She could f- cook food with the energy in her hands. And it, if she was out walking alone at night, she could duplicate another person walking beside her. She actually, at one point, stopped developing these psychic powers. She recognized that, you know, that this was not what was necessary to awaken, and that it was actually feeding the ego, and this was a hindrance to liberation. So these powers develop out of a very strong, stable concentration, but that concentration isn't always used for liberation. A stable mind is necessary. And there's actually, it's interesting in speaking about concentration, because within Buddhist teachings itself, there is very different schools about how much concentration is needed. During the time of the Buddha, I mean, prior to his awakening, there was a system of jhana practice that was very prevalent. And this is what he did. And this was where the mind would get very deeply concentrated. The mind becomes absorbed into the object of its meditation. And as this happens, as this absorption happens, then you know, the rest of experience starts to fall away. And one experiences, you know, really... Um, hmm, uh, the the fineness, the subtlety of a mind that is protected from the hindrances. You know, it's it's a taste of a type of liberation where the mind is no longer caught in greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's very conditioned. And this is something the Buddha recognized. He recognized that even though he could go to the depths of jhana absorption, this was not complete freedom. And so he used this absorption practice as a base for insight. He then turned towards the changing nature of experience. And so... Since that time of the Buddha, you know, many, some people think that it's really essential to cultivate these states of deep absorption. And other schools say that concentration is essential, absorption is essential, but it doesn't need to, or not absorption, um, the stability of mind. But the stability that is taught in what's sometimes called dry insight meditation or wisdom practice is a concentration that comes from momentary mindfulness, where there's a continuity of mindfulness. And out of that, moment by moment, 
awareness of experience, the stability of mind comes. The stability of mind that is necessary for insight. It's something in my own experience that I've had to experiment with around concentration. How to find the stability of mind. Whether, uh, you know, at times having focused on jhana practice, seeing it how it affected the practice, at other times just really working with the stability of mind that is not dependent on, you know, a secluded environment. Uh, Finding this moment-to-moment mindfulness that can be a practice that walks out the door with me at the end of a retreat, looking to the stability of mind that one can find in the midst of a life where experiences are continually changing. I think in looking at concentration, what's really important is to know that right concentration is concentration that is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this doesn't always manifest the way we might think. That sometimes in practice, we can have a real desire to strengthen concentration, and it's based in the wanting mind. And this is not wholesome concentration. The wholesome concentration will come about when there is, you know, this calmness, this relaxedness, this ease of mind that's simply meeting experience, and then concentration naturally strengthens in a wholesome way. And similarly, you know, we could be doing loving-kindness meditation, and we could be doing it in an unwholesome way, where we're doing it to benefit ourselves so that we will feel better. Or we could be doing loving-kindness meditation really in a wholesome way, where it's just, you know, to, to wish well, from the bottom of our hearts for another and doing this moment by moment and the mind may really stabilize. So it's not the object of meditation that is wholesome or unwholesome but the way the mind is applied and whether that is filtered through greed, aversion or delusion. In recent years, I've been quite struck by some people that I've spoken with who spent many years in practice simply 
focusing on the breath, reaching states of calmness, concentration, relying on conditions to do so, needing to have you know a morning quiet period of sitting, needing to come on retreat and calling this their practice. And then faced with life-threatening illness, faced with a lot of pain, faced with a body that could no longer sit upright, having the sense that they've been abandoned, the practice isn't serving them. We really have to take the practice to a deeper level than simply calm, than a focused level of concentration. We really need to find that deep stability in the mind that comes through the continuity of mindfulness because this is what will help us to move into the next factor, that of equanimity, where the equanimous mind can meet all experiences. It can hold the joys and the sorrows, the ups and the downs. It doesn't get overexcited when things seem to be going well. It doesn't get thrown into despair when things seem to be more difficult. It remains even, poised, balanced. It's often likened to that of being as steady as a mountain. And this is uh, an example that I've really resonated with because I grew up near the mountains. And I actually felt in my own life that, that you know, the mountains were my first teacher. And I think equanimity was one of the qualities that I got in touch with through spending a lot of time in the mountains. You know, just this sense of this mountain sitting and storms come, thunder, lightning, rain, hail, sleet. All kinds of changes happen. And the mountain is steady, poised, balanced. So looking to the stability of mind, the stable awareness that can be with these changes, that can allow, accept, is not thrown about by. And equanimity is not something that happens by chance. Equanimity is deeper than concentration. It comes from wisdom. It comes from a non-reactivity in the mind. Where, you know, we... um, It's something we can't fake. It's something we can't manufacture. 
It's something that once we've been thrown around by experiences so many times, you know, we, the, the enchantment goes. You know, it's no longer in those moments where in practice where it gets really clear, refined, a lot of clarity, and it becomes exhilarating. You know, everything is just what it is because we've seen so many changes. Equanimity often gets really strengthened on long retreats because everything comes and goes. You know, there's the good days, the bad days. And, you know, so we just practice with what is. We keep turning up for what is. We're no longer so enchanted. Sariputta, who was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, was one day sitting very close to the Buddha and meditating. And the Buddha proclaimed, Just as a mountain of rock is unwavering, well settled, so the one whose delusion is ended is like a mountain undisturbed. We find with this balance in the mind, there comes an unshakeability. It's an unshakeability that is not rigid or fixed, but it's rather the mind is so malleable that it can open, hold, receive. Sometimes we think of balance as being like on the precipice of a knife edge. But equanimity's balance is so broad. It's as spacious as the sky. There's a line from Rainer Rilke's Book of Hours, uh, Love Poems to God, which I think just reflects something of how we find this deep equanimity. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. There is some misconceptions about equanimity. Sometimes people think that it means being very passive. And this isn't what it points to at all. Because there is with equanimity a connectedness, a clear seeing, a non-reactivity, which can lead to a responsiveness based in wisdom rather than reactivity. Equanimity is not filled with feelings of futility or hopelessness, such as everything's changing and there's nothing I can do about it anyways. 
know, sometimes it's like there's a sense of resigning oneself to the truth of impermanence. But this doesn't have the wisdom element. This is a sense of collapsing, um, where real equanimity isn't tempted to hold on to, attach to experience, because it is the mind is at ease, at peace with the truth of impermanence. Another, uh, uh, an experience that kind of, that can often mask itself uh, as equanimity is that of indifference, where it's very different. Indifference is disconnected has a sense of separation uh, where equanimity is connected. And I know in my own practice there was many times where there was a sense of indifference and, and at first it appeared as equanimity, the believing that uh, this was the balanced mind. But, you know, closer investigation and that's why you know all of these factors are so important and that they're all there you know, the really uh, connecting and discerning this state w- there was the capacity then to see that actually this connection was happening that there was an indifference that was more a sense of stepping away separating rather than the connection where the mind is just non-reactive. I've found it um, just amazing in my own mind to just see how much reactivity there is in the mind. And, you know, at times in practice it's very subtle, uh, sometimes very blatant too, but um, and it's really the paying attention to this reactivity that leads to equanimity. Because, as I said, we can't fake it. We can try. You know, it's like trying to be at peace with um, the pain in our knee, and. Uh, and it's, you know, really is a pretense. It's a form of pretending, oh, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And, you know, there's an inner cringe and sense of, um, you know, just even that slight disconnection, you know, is that reactivity. Uh, I remember, you know, being with the state of anger. Oh, yes, the calm, the calm one who could meet this experience, anger, mm, anger. And, you know, it was really, you know, this sense of, Okay, anger, I'll be with you so you'll go away. Or, you know, it was not, at some point there was just the recognition of this distancing. And then, then there came the real embracing of this state, the real knowing of this state, as if this state could be here for the rest of my life and it would be okay. You know, the, a real acceptance, which equanimity has that quality of acceptance. It doesn't feed the anger. It's not reacting. The mind's not reacting.
at times we really see the power of this. I was in Burma and sitting at uh, Center Chamayakta, and this meditation center always had construction happening. <laughs> it was just one of these things, so there was often a lot of sound. And, you know, there was some sense of being okay with that. And after a period of practicing there, uh, and really just being with what was arising, there was a day where right, you know, it was probably 15 yards at the most from the meditation hall, they started to drill a well. And there was this machine going all day long. They did it from morning till evening. And the really fortunate piece for me was on the very first day, there was some degree of equanimity in the mind. And it was just another experience. That equanimity didn't last. You know, there was many days after that when there was reaction. But from that experience, there was knowing that it was not about the experience. It was how the mind was relating to the experience. And just the knowing of that, because, you know, when we are caught in the place of thinking, if we get experience just right, that's dukkha, you know, because <laughs> it's never gonna last. So we have to, we have to go bigger than that, broader than that. Hold it all, be with it all, know it all. This equanimity, too, develops very organically. Now, as we practice being with any experience, this in itself, you know, it's not saying, yes, um, this pleasant sound is better than this pain in my knee. No, it's just opening to whatever comes right there equanimity, um, just the, the, the planting the seeds for the deep-rooted wisdom of equanimity in the course of our day, not letting any one activity be any more important than any other activity. Now this brings an evenness of mind Sometimes it can be interesting to just look in a moment and see if there's anything present in one's experience that is not being accepted, where there is subtle aversion wanting to get rid of. You know, it could be, uh, you know, that there's just a slight niggling in the mind, you know, a little bit of disease, but not wanting to see it. You know, and so trying to focus away from it, you know, trying to keep the attention where it's more pleasant. It's been very revealing to me. And to remember that 
we can actually find joy in the scene of these different levels of reactivity. No, because in the seeing of them, we can find freedom from them. If they're not seen, they are what's running the show. They're coloring the vision. They're, they're you know, really giving momentum to the direction we're moving in. But seeing, letting it be in consciousness, we can see this reactivity in its nature. We can see the aversion. Just knowing of its conditioned nature. Knowing that it's impermanent. We, in order to discover equanimity, we have to be willing to work with our resistance. We don't always want to see clearly. I mean, well, that's my experience. <laughs> Anyhow. And, and so, you know, at times, too, we're going to have to be there with resistance. The mind that doesn't want. Opening to this experience, too. Now, this is a part of opening to it all. So equanimity, the mind that is clinging to nothing... No, it's not moved, it's non-reactive. And so, these seven factors of awakening, the first of the three being, uh, well, mindfulness, which is the one that helps us to actually deepen the other factors, that it's through being able to connect, be with experience, uh, being able to see when these factors get out of balance, you know, the, the energizing factors, that of investigation, energy, rapture, the stabilizing factors, calmness and tranquility, uh, concentration and equanimity. Mindfulness can recognize. Mindfulness can see when... Uh, You know, if we find that the energizing factors are too strong, it leads into restlessness. Um, And that's when it's really helpful to look at uh, strengthening the stabilizing qualities, looking, turning the mind towards that which calms, cools the mind, that brings that balance. And if the, the calmness is too strong, without energy, the mind moves into a sinking mind, a quagmire. You know, it's very um, sluggish. And that's where it's really helpful just to bring in the energizing qualities, to bring in a little bit more interest, investigation. Uh, 
a friend of mine was re- recently telling me how he was on retreat and he'd had you know, one period of practice where it had been that effortless effort. Things had been really smooth. And you know, he had, as the Buddha talked about, contemplating these factors of awakening, really checking to see whether they're present or absent, learning for ourselves what helps these factors to arise, and then once arisen, how they can be strengthened, which, you know, mindfulness, wise attention is key. So my friend was practicing, and, you know, the factors had been really even balanced. And then the next day he was practicing again, and he felt like he said he was all over the map. And then so he thought, okay, I'm just going to check the factors of awakening to see what's present. And as he did so, what he noticed was the quality of investigation was not there. And as soon as he brought that in, the mind came back into balance. So it's something that's you know, helpful to contemplate, to know, to understand. And at the same time, in working with these seven factors... There are some things to know. One is we can get caught in striving for perfection. You know, and this is just really based in you know, trying to get it perfect, the mind of greed, um, wanting. And that's not going to be helpful. You know, that is going to lead to you know, an agitated mind. So that, that, that's really to see. The mind won't come into balance when that is there. So that's one thing to know. Another thing to be aware of is that These are wonderful, helpful allies in the mind, but attachment to any of them will become a hindrance, will become an obstacle to awakening. So it's kind of interesting because when we work hard, uh, well, you know, just with the steadiness, continuity, a persistence, a willingness of heart, these factors in the mind strengthen, but don't hang on. <laughs> if we hang on, it will just lead to suffering. And my own experience is I had to learn that for myself. You know, and that to really, when one does start to get attached to any of these factors, to recognize this, to see to see the wanting that's there in the mind, the attachment. And remembering that liberation is the mind that clings to nothing. These factors get strengthened, come to maturation as we bring wise attention, as there comes this continuity of mindfulness, a willingness of heart to meet this moment as it is. And we let this mindfulness deepen 
strengthen. Working with the continuity. This continuity, I know we talk about it a lot, but it's so important. And looking at ways you can strengthen continuity. Taking an interest to see what will help you. Where, where you don't have interest, in, interesting to know, uh, where it's challenging, where you just have this habit of putting down mindfulness. Transition times are often a time when we, it's like the mind jumps ahead, whether it's, you know, you're sitting, and then, you know, the thought comes up, time to walk. And one just immediately drops the practice, jumps up, and starts going. Little, you know, or you're walking and you go to sit down. I don't know why it is an experience, but many times, any time where there's a transition, uh, this was just, uh, to me, uh, something quite unrelated. Well, it was the scene of these transition times and and that, uh, uh, tendency to not be aware. And it had a very <laughs> good reminder in it. I was living in Australia, and I lived right by this beach, and I'd been down swimming on the beach, and there was a staircase that went up to the level of the road. And, you know, as I started walking up the stairs, there was awareness of each step, you know, putting it down. And, but then the transition to go to the road was not far away. And it was that moment of transitioning. And so I didn't look where my foot was about to be placed. And I put my foot down on a deadly poisonous snake. <laughs> and that deadly poisonous snake was very good to me. It did not bite me. It just <laughs> went away. But um, it just, you know, these moments where we're not mindful, that's where the mind gets into trouble. And so, you know, look and see where we put down this mindfulness. Going into our room, shutting the door, relaxing. You know, sometimes that that was my experience till I had a roommate, and my roommate was so um, such a strong practitioner that it really helped me to work within my room with continuity. And then, you know, where one has a sense of putting down mindfulness, what's happening there? What, what are we doing? That interest alone will bring, bring energy, it will bring presence to what's happening, rather than just unconsciously spacing out. the strengthening of these factors are great allies. They are not the cause of nibbana, but the cause of the realization of nibbana. Because this is where the mind gains the stability necessary to recognize nibbana. Nibbana, the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. The mind free from these forces.
the Buddha said of the seven factors that they're leading to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. They lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. They are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them out of the complete destruction of suffering. To remember they do organically grow, strengthen, sustain as we become aware of them, as we practice moment by moment. So let's just sit for a moment. May any goodness that arises from our practice, from the work that we are doing here, may this be dedicated to the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.